Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF study on the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, the BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today we're looking at Joel and Obadiah of Lesson 14. Now, not so long ago, a young student said to me, I am getting tired of reading about judgment week after week. And so I stopped them and I asked, do you, so do you feel like you understand the subject any better now that you've been studying it for a few weeks? And he replied, well, kind of, but I, I'm just kind of tired. And so I said, well, imagine, um, I imagine that you still have a long way to go. Uh, you know what artists do when they study something? They really take time to involve themselves in it deeply. Uh, imagine going into a museum, for instance, and studying the history of art as an artist was trying to study it. If you're studying, say, uh, as Picasso did in the study of a bull, you would draw a bull so many different times as to capture it and understand it and to kind of peer into the essence of what you're studying deeply. And that's what Picasso actually did. If you go to the uh, Picasso Museum in Paris, there is a timeline of Picasso's rendition of a bull. And it starts very realistically, like many of us would draw it with its horns and its full body. And uh, Picasso kind of loved bulls because he saw how it represented unbridled power and strength. He would draw and draw bulls every chance he could to study its form, its character, its power, and come to a deeper understanding of how we react to and respond to this, this thing, this animal and its vitality. So how we see it uh, against human life and how we experience power. So he would draw it on napkins and toilet paper and scraps of notebooks and newspapers and stationery. And this is what really struck me when I first went through the Picasso Museum, is that they archived, they found and archived each one of his drawings and put a date to it so that you can see the transition of where he went from thinking about it kind of the, in, in the very materialistic way in which we would see it as a physical entity to more of an abstraction. And so here is a picture of how that looked. Uh, of course, there are missing parts to here, uh, but you get the general idea that the more he studied the bull by looking and looking and thinking about it, the more his art refined it into its essence, to the abstraction that captured its fundamental essence. The art and artists communicate perspectives that we ordinarily would gloss over and don't always see or notice. God does the same thing with important aspects of spiritual realities, spiritual realities that are essential and important that he knows we need to be keenly aware of. And this, he cares for us to understand deeply about sin and how it leads to judgment. And he's talking about judgment over and over again because it is important to the broader brushstrokes of things that are real in the bigger universe of the spiritual world. We're looking at judgment now and how it is bounded by God's hope through the atonement of the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God. We're really dwelling and we're really wrestling now with the language behind uh, bigger realities that are essential from God's perspective that we need to know. So the key words and phrases for uh, this study that I'd like for you to be thinking about are words like Zion, the day of the Lord, locusts, 
locus, as you recall, uh, is the method of uh, judgment that came upon uh, Israel in this uh, prophetic book. The rending of hearts, wearing sackcloth. What does that mean? The inheritance that God would want to give us if we had the preparation of the heart and mind to receive it. And then this phrase, sun to darkness and the moon to blood. And you may think of other key words and phrases that are important to you, but I just want you to be careful not to gloss over these words too fast, because in doing so, you may misunderstand that you understand something when, you know, when we really don't have a firm grasp of it. These are ways in which God's kind of honing in and getting us into the bullseye of the truth that is underlying uh, these prophetic words. So I begin with another uh, thing that happened recently for me. Um, have you had uh, an experience in life when you worked really hard at something, kind of invested all your best into it and saw it grow and establish itself into maturity, only to find that at the very time you expected to enjoy it, the joy was replaced by grief and you saw it being stolen or eaten up and brought to utter waste? I mean, it was completely... It's like the rug was pulled underneath your feet and you didn't re realize that it could be taken from you. Well, if one lives long enough, one experiences something of this along the way of life. It might be a job, a relationship, a promotion. It could be children that we idolize or assets that we depended on for retirement, kind of as an insurance plan. Well, this week, I watched the tragic life story of a young girl who is mature for her age at 11 years old. You see a picture of her here. Uh, as an adult, she enjoyed the attraction she had as a very young girl. She, there was kind of a power she experienced, she said. She was getting from the people around her when she saw her sexuality, the maturity and the development that she had very, very early in her kind of, um, in her teen, uh, early, early, not even teen years, she was only 11. Uh, the sexuality that was starting to uh, be realized in her body and she kind of displayed it for all because she saw she loved getting the attention such that she hung out with all the wrong people ultimately and before she knew it she was used and abused by many different men and then became eventually entangled in forced prostitution almost for all of her teen years leading up to into her 20s you can hear her gritty story here there's a link on youtube um but she's now 35 years old and she wonders at how her promising life took a sudden turn for the worse. And she didn't realize how it happened uh, at the time, but she saw how it burnt up all the good promising things that she was given and left her utterly destitute, utterly destitute and an entirely different person from who she kind of expected she would be. And it reminded me, her story reminded me of the locust that eats away at the great gifts and the bounty, the bounty that we have often been spoiled with in life. Things that we take for granted, whether it's our lives, our youth, the treasures that we have, the families that we possess, sooner or later, uh, there's a miscalculation that we, had, we fall into. Uh, we m miscalculated who we were our most fundamental needs, our understanding of our need for God or lack of our need for God. Um, we, we kind of have this serious miscalculation of what our, our lives are about. Revelations 3.17 says, For you say, I am rich, 
I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We say in the pride of our plenty, this very verse, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is what sin does. Sin leaves us destitute. This naked and destitute picture uh, arises very early on in the scripture when where God finds Adam and Eve after they have sinned. And the very first indication of our salvation comes with God clothing Adam and Eve with a particular kind of clothing for their shame. The clothing made from animal skins of all kinds of different kinds of clothing material he could have used, he, he uses animal skins. They had never worn clothes before, remember. And imagine being clothed with skins from animals, knowing that you once tended to and loved. A precious life was sacrificed for the clothing they wore. It was to be a precursor of the sacrifice on the altar that would eventually symbolize God's covenant that He would send a life-giving Savior. God ensures there is hope amid judgment. And that Savior is the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. But the study of sin and judgment and redemption takes time. Martin Luther once said, um, when he's talking about for us as finite learning humans, how we grow into understanding, that we uh, understand through the progress of time as a process of knowing God's heart and the unveiling of God's mind. He said, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, as in all of a sudden righteousness happens, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we should be. We are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. So I'd like for us to think about that, that there is a fullness of time, the way in which God uses time as a way in which to lead us down to the gallery of a museum per se, the museum of our lives, the museum of human history, to demonstrate and teach us and get us into thinking deeply about the different perspective around the ways in which we see and understand the glory of God's redemption and salvation from judgment, ultimately that which we fully deserved in the fullness of time, which is God's salvation. But sin has to reach its full measure. And then here in these uh, prophetic works, the repeated phrase, in the day of the Lord, when uh, sin has reached its climax, its, its apex, and God brings ultimately judgment. Um, so recall and remember this as we think about, through this process, how God is patient, but not forever patient. I mean, that He has to, by His righteousness, bring a closure to um, and stop sin in its rapacious uh, devastation on um, the ways in which it harms and destroys us and all humanity. And so who leads us down through these gallery walls of reflecting on ourselves and how we are to be? And that's the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine today is of the Holy Spirit and his attribute is patience with us. The big idea is that the hope of God exists through and amidst judgment. 
principles that we take away is that God infuses hope into desperate situations when we turn to Him. And God never overlooks wrongs done to His people, but seeks to restore those who turn to Him. The division to look at is that first, Joel prophesies a locust invasion, judgment, and restoration on the day of the Lord. And Obadiah uh, prophesies uh, Edom's downfall. Edom, as you know, is the lineage of the people from Esau. And a, a people who is now kind of a, a people who had rallied around celebrating Israel's downfall. But uh, Obadiah prophesies Israel's restoration. And the subject sentence is Joel and Obadiah prophesied coming judgment and hope for Israel. And it causes us to learn that God warns of coming judgment, but offers hope and restoration. Because God is just. Uh, he must judge sin. I, I came across uh, speaking with a universalist uh, of a Unitarian church, and they said, oh, well, everybody gets to heaven. And I said, well, whatever happens to judgment and sin is, well, God's going to let everybody into heaven anyway. That's the only just way. And I said, well, what about the people who are mass murderers, the ones who have uh, kind of embarked on this holocaust of annihilating whole people groups uh, and then also been personally involved in killing and uh, destroying innocent human lives? How would God be just and loving if he condoned and allowed that to proceed and go unaddressed? God is just and God will execute his justice through judgment. And the only hope we have is in the Messiah and our turning in repentant and hum humble hearts to him. So this chapter goes on to talk more about this. And I just want to uh, give you a preface to this as we start talking about this a little more in depth. The rise of the kingdom of Assyria as God's instrument of justice and judgment continued to play a large role in the messages of the prophet. We saw this in Jonah, where the pagan Ninevites felt kind of an encroaching threat arise. It doesn't say who the threat was specifically, but we know historically that Assyrians were growing in strength and power at the time, and they would have overcome the Ninevites, the city-state of Nineveh, and they were spared by their immediate repentance. But that posture of repentance was not long-lasting. We know that because history shows that Nineveh was overtaken eventually, and they went back to their old ways. The prophets, however, here with Joel and Obadiah, and later with Isaiah, are addressing Israel. And their per current predicament here at its core is not a political one, nor an agricultural one, as we talk, you know, has a, there's a lot of imagery around fields being eaten by locusts by small ones and big ones and eaten time after time, different waves of it coming through as they might misinterpret uh, this as being kind of prophetically a, a dour time in their, in the seasonal kind of infestation of their, of their pastures. That's not what he's talking about here. It's entirely, he's pointing to a spiritual problem at its core. God is trying to address a spiritual reality here, pointing to things that require our spiritual attention and our spiritual work. It's not about the material. The Sabbath is a call for spiritual alertness and attentiveness. We don't go to church on Sunday as a perfunctory ritual. That's not what God is wanting. It is to revitalize and reawaken our eyes, our spiritual eyes and our souls into the spiritual realities that supersede the material. God wants us to know um, how profoundly impactful these spiritual realities are. We know the material things cannot explain the ultimate things. 
They did not come into existence on their own, but the spiritual created the material and holds it together, and the spiritual things are the reality of the future. That's what lasts into eternity. That's what our future is made up of. Although we can't fully understand the whole breadth of it, but there are core kind of rules of, the, of, the, of life that we must live into to be prepared for that. God created us to engage in spiritual and moral work, however, in this life kind of as a dress up as a, a way of getting our our lives and our thinking rightly positioned and aligned with his someone asked me why a loving god allows so much evil in the world well you know there are many answers for that but one of the answers that is relevant for this lesson is that god wants us to engage in spiritual and moral work as he does and as he cares about as he knows that this is going to be important for his kingdom we are, in fact, created after himself, right? And commissioned to tend to his people like he does. We are doing the work that he's commissioned us to do, that he commissioned Adam to do. This means tending to things by God's ways in love for the beauty and goodness of God himself, reflected in his creation, and in particular, reflected in the image given to all humanity. Humankind bears a special reflection of his self, the essence of God within us. But there are forces, and I'm not saying, excuse me, that I'm not saying that we're God, but if you understand, we are image bearers of God. And there are forces which tear away at the beauty and goodness of God in the world, forces and attitudes that don't want to have anything to do with him. They're the opposing forces against God. They claim to be self-existing, self-sustaining, able to discern things on their own terms, what is right and good, and knowing things by their own terms, how to order their lives by their own terms, and govern their lives apart and separated from God. And there are people who try to live this way. Israel, in this historical period, tried to live this way. Nations, world that we live in today, try to live this way. Well, God shows us that that's not possible. Our autonomy, the belief that our lives can flourish and prosper apart from God, is really at its hand, biblically speaking, a naive, selfish notion. At its core is the belief that I determine everything about who I want to be, why I'm alive, and what I will become. And, you know, that's kind of the thesis behind the humanist manifesto, right? But the biblical humanism say, no, we are created reflecting a higher being, a God who has made us. If there's everything that was perfect and good, we reflect the higher God. We reflect Him into all the world. And that glory shines and radiates in powerful ways for all eternity. So what is the spiritual and moral work that we are to be doing to solve these problems? The Bible teaches us that we can solve these problems by ourselves with anything that we have access to. There's nothing, no power, no way in which we can move into this. It's only entirely by our dependence on God and His anointed Messiah, His Son, that through the Son, we gain new life and new eyes, new ways in which we become rightly again aligned to become instruments of His good in the world. Being able to do moral work means making strong moral choices for others' welfare, being selfless, making personal sacrifices. Being able to do moral work necessitates that we learn to respond as God would to moral problems, 
to eschew evil and love the good, to make decisions for ordering our lives as God would have us to, which is what is meant by according to your will or his will. So in this uh, book here of Joel, we understand that these are times of testing for Israel to make God is making them sensitive again in their deadened spirits to bring a greater appreciation for justice and mercy and humility. So even as God is trying to teach them, it can be easy for people to misread the times. When people don't understand why these natural disasters are happening, they can go in all kinds of dis- uh, it- directions, misinterpreting the events. There's an article in Psychology Today called Losing the Plot. And it's an interesting article because it talks about how when people do not fully understand their place in life and the circumstances that are happening, the trouble that they're encountering, they are unable to know how to respond. They're unable to make the decisions they need to make. They don't know how to move on and make progress because they're losing the plot. They don't understand the narrative. They don't understand what is going on, how to make sense of what is going on. And so the prophets are sent by God to help them understand clearly, to make sense that all of these things that are happening, whether war, social ills, family issues, mental illness, crime, substance abuse, that these all things have a spiritual root. The prophets indicate that our worldly perspective can cloud our thinking because the worldly thinking is limited in its scope and how the turmoil around us may actually have a spiritual root and that we must search and seek seek God's direction to understand and redress them from their spiritual foundations. And I can imagine some people might say, isn't that superstitious? Isn't that hokey pokey? We modern people with our advances and thinking and understanding are beyond rain dance rituals and appealing to the gods to eliminate you know, plague, famine, and drought. Yes, while not all of life's distresses are instances of judgment, as we can see from the admonitions of the prophets, God sends indelible signs, indications, and warnings, messages to warn us that, that they are pointing to matters of spiritual decline and corruption and judgment. Not only is the matter of evidence to the bringer of the message, but it is borne out in the line of evidence they bring, and the consequences they say will come to pass. And so this is where we are. So going into Joel, I just wanted to go through this slide here that distills um, kind of what's going on here. Uh, so in the distillation, we might be able to kind of isolate and see clearly what's, what is being said. First, there's judgment, the description of the hard truth in God's instructions. The land is going to be devastated. The land devastated by locusts and drought. The people are devastated by sin. And as you know, uh, sin is uh, never just something that we hold in, in individually, but sin uh, has a way of being cancerous and infectious in the ways in which we mistreat and degrade and disintegrate, not only uh, having an effect on ourselves as a disintegrative force, but it ends up disintegrating and harming our relationship with others, bringing them down, pulling them down. So there's an urgency to turn. The day of the Lord is coming. And there is uh, prophetically a message that there's hopelessness without God, essentially. And then chapter 2 talks about hope, the solution that we have when we turn to God. And the admonition to return wholeheartedly, to return 
for God's glory to be revealed. And, and that's to see the radiance of God being revealed through the flourishing that he enables us to live into and to prosper in, to return and be fully satisfied, to return and be rescued, return and to uh, erupt in rejoicing over his faithfulness, to return and to be glad over his redemption. And then lastly, to believe in the, in the greater hope uh, and blessing that God's from the indwelling of God's spirit in us. And then chapter 3 goes on to the final judgment uh, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, where God judges righteously. The Lord is our refuge and hope. And it talks about the, the ultimate Lord uh, being the eternal dwelling place of a people uh, on Zion. The principle here is the only reasonable response to sin and its devastation is to rend our hearts to God, to authentically and deeply within our core understand the situation and the problem as he understands it, not to kind of dismiss it as being unimportant and, and, and alien to us. Uh, and that's where rending our hearts is important, right? If we truly understood what sin does as it devastates, like the locusts, devastating the land if we truly understood what these are uh kind of pictures of what's happening to us spiritually not with only within ourselves but societally uh we would be rending our hearts and wearing sackcloth which represents this posture of not caring about what we're wearing and and, and the kind of decorations that we have around us to make us look good we are coming completely broken completely in who we are without any adornments as we are before God in humility and brokenness. And the application question is asking an interesting question. It's asking about, you know, when is the last time you've had uh, a broken and contrite heart before God about anything? And what eventually brought you to that place? And how, how might you be needing that regarding a sin or something that you're holding back from God today? And then the Obadiah chapter uh, goes into the description of God's blessing through God's outpouring of his Holy Spirit. That even as judgment comes in the in the valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, which is that uh, Jehoshaphat means God judges, that Lord is our refuge and our hope. That the Lord is our Redeemer and our Savior. And that's something deeply to be meditating on. It's also uh, the running theme of uh, Zion, right? The Zion, the peak, the pinnacle that is always before us, above all other mountains in the earth, the Mount of Zion being uh, visible to all the earth as a source of our redemption and our restoration, uh, emblemizing uh, the kingdom of God in Christ. So, uh, in Obadiah, we look at Edom. And now Edom here is interesting because they are people who have obstructed uh, God's people as they moved into the promised land. And in a larger sense, Edom represents who uh, anyone who hinders the movement of God into God's covenantal promises, those who obstruct and confuse and deride or pull down or hold back anyone who is seeking to enter into God's full and rich promises. And so uh, remember that passage in our study, Numbers 20, 14 to 21, where uh, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom saying, uh, this is what your brother Israel says, you know about all the hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. 
The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not to, or that means out in the open out in the way that the path that's established and, and uh, maintained by the nation and not turn to the right or left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's bad enough. They say, you know, don't even try Don't come through. You're not welcome. But they threatened them too with the sword, uh, with death. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road. And if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. And you have to remember, Edom was the direct route, right? As they were coming out of the Sinai wilderness into the promised land toward the Jordan River. Verse 20, again, they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. Wow, you know, this is pretty pretty bad in terms of the way Edom was a cousin, right? He was Esau, Jacob's brother, and he embraced Jacob on his return. But now this um, nation that after their wandering comes back, uh, they're prevented from entering the, the land to take possession of the land as God has promised, standing in the way of God's will. And you know that there are many people who may look like they're very close, but are very far away from the will and purposes of God. And how dangerous that can be. And how much of a, and how judgment comes on people who stand in the way of God, although they may give off the appearance of being for God and for the things of God. They may, you know, sit in our congregations and do the things, but it's in the ways in which they abstract the perfect redemptive power of God being manifested in the ways in which we live out our lives and practice out our faith. Christians are not about theory. Christians are not theorists. We're not some backroom uh, philosophizers uh, sitting on a couch and just going about abstractions all our days. We live into the reality that God has depicted for us, reality that we will be living into and we currently live into in Christ. And that is the whole point. That is the whole point. We are not theorists. So how might individuals and nations sin in this way today? How are we doing in the ways in which we are also obstructing and portraying a false picture, a false picture of who we are as a people after God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the power of your word as you wrestle with us, as you contend with us, as you did Jacob, who became Israel, you contend with us. You want us to move out of our fakery and the ways in which we are ritualistic. We are living cold lives as theorists into all that you've taught us. Help us to move out of thinking th theoretically into practical and real ways we live out into the workings of your hands in the world around us, in the ways in which you have warned us about the sin uh, encroaching on our lives, the ways in which it devastates our society and our world, our nation. The so, Lord, I, we pray that we would be a repentant people, that we would, Lord, as your church, uh, not be uh, like the people of Esau and Edom that stand in the way by false portrayals of what Christians are, false depictions of who you are. 
and bearing your message so lightly as to be insignificant in the eyes of the world, but bearing your word with power and with authenticity, with real work done, wrestling with what is wrong and what is right, loving what is right, and moving into an exultant and victorious celebration of the great salvation that you've given through your son. Help us to know the full import of all of these things. Your greater, greater story, Lord, above the one that we keep hearing on the news, that that is not everything. The greater realities of everything that you are doing, Lord, is in Jesus and that you are redeeming men and women to yourself. And that through all the ways in which our lives are inconvenienced, Father, they are reminders of the ways in which we think, Lord, that our lives are about seeking after and running after pleasure and, and things, material things, when you have taught us and shown us that our lives are about so much more that we need to be realistically living into. Thank you, Father, for being patient with us and for the dwelling of your Holy Spirit. Lead us, Lord, and guide us patiently by thy Holy Spirit into all truth and help us to be attentive, to love, Lord, sitting at your feet and to be learning from you day by day. In Jesus' name we, we pray. Amen. Your love is a fountain that won't run dry. Mercy is strong as a mountain. Compassion that reaches beyond the sky. And if I should stumble and falter, or if my heart wanders along the you speak and I am awakened, faithfully leading me back again, straight to your heart, safe in your